Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello there, and welcome to episode 7 of the Wealth Growth Podcast. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is someone who I very much look up to. When thinking about getting the message out about women, about their health, she was one of the first on my list. So when a mutual friend, Scott Share mentioned that he knew her, I jumped at the chance to get her on. She's one of those women who is literally squeezing the most out of life. She's a researcher, she's a doc, she's a full-time mom to little Aries. She lectures and educates, she looks incredible, she has energy and mental focus like crazy, and somehow, she's really a lovely person as well. If you speak with her for five minutes, you'll be buzzing around with energy for the rest of the day. She's an absolutely incredible doctor and a researcher who's been mentored by some of the most incredible people in the industry, including Dr. Donald Lehman, an expert in muscle development and metabolism. Her core is focusing on what she has coined muscle-centric medicine, and she is one of the forefront people trying to salvage the good reputation of protein. This is what she's known for and what she speaks at length about on her Instagram and many of her interviews. But one thing that is often overlooked is that Dr. Gabrielle is one of the few docs out there who has actually worked with older geriatric patients. We've got loads of people talking about longevity, peptides, and injecting many things in many places. But here's a doctor who has seen what has and has not worked when she has worked with the older generations. I really love that about her and how for her, It's not just an abatement of aging and pushing it off as much as possible, but having seen patients firsthand who have had age-related sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle tissue, dementia, and hip fractures, Dr. Gabrielle is looking at aging not just as a fad to look young for as long as possible, but about the quality of living on this planet for as long as we have. Enjoy. Dr. Gabrielle, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Hey, so great. We get to connect this morning. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And and thank you, Dr. Scott Share as well for connecting us. I'm very happy about that. Um, so just to get started, let's just get right into it. Yes. For you, what is the number one thing that you want to debunk on women's health? I would say one of the most valuable things to understand is that it takes a lot of effort for women to become bulky. So the, that is one of the biggest myths that resistance training and dietary protein is going to make women bulky. It's not true. How much do you actually need to take or be consuming in order to get bulky? I mean, I would say you're looking at a genetic component and you're looking at a very tight training regimen. It takes years to put on the kind of muscle mass and bulk. For some reason, women compare themselves to men in this way because a guy has a lot more testosterone, or at least we hope so. Um, That would be weird otherwise. So they have an anabolic favoritism, men do, to really put on muscle mass. A woman is not going to look like a small man. It's a total myth. No, I mean, I suppose if she was taking performance enhancing drugs, it's possible. Um, but the reality is most women who want to age well and are thinking about 10, 20, 30 years of trajectory and optimizing through menopause and optimizing through those hormonal changes, the most important thing that they can do 
is really optimize skeletal muscle mass mm-hmm. in midlife, you know? So that's a, a massive myth that needs to be debunked for sure. Yeah. I think oftentimes women just say, oh, well, I'm, I don't want to look big. I don't want right. to bulk up. Yeah. Right. And if I start having protein or start eating too much meat or having these whey, whey shakes. Yeah. If you were to think about, and I was looking at the literature recently, the amount of muscle an individual could put on in a month. And I suppose it's possible to put one to two pounds of muscle on in a month. That, that would take a lot of effort. Um, but that would take a lot of effort. And it's not just putting on muscle. It's also losing body fat right at the same time. So it's not just getting bigger. Your diet is tight. Your training is increased. You're increasing your metabolism. There's all these other factors that go into it. Um, but it's probably one of the most common concerns that I hear as a clinician treating patients. So it's less even about health and more about physical, how you look. Totally. Now within your practice, you see obviously both men and women. Are there things that your protocol is differs between the two? So it depends on what we're talking about. If we are talking about a nutrition protocol, then the core fundamental principles are based in good science. And that is equivalent for a male or female. And that is an interesting question because when you think about protein needs, it's actually not based on body weight or sex. So protein needs are based on muscle mass and are irrespective of whether you're female or male. However, the variability comes into play is carbohydrate tolerant. And this is certainly anecdotal and based on a decade of seeing patients and doing nutritional research, women tend to have a lower carbohydrate threshold. And especially as they start going through hormonal changes, if they have lower estrogen levels, there does end up being a shift in their ability to tolerate carbohydrates in a 24-hour period and certainly on a meal-to-meal threshold basis. Now, but if you're talking about medication-wise and supplementation-wise, I do supplement men and women differently. What are the supplements that are typically different? So it depends on the woman, but I am very quick to make sure that her hormones are optimized. I am not hesitant to put women on testosterone if their levels are low, and certainly not hesitant to put them on progesterone. Do you typically do a Dutch hormonal panel test? I do both. I do Dutch and I do blood work. And then of course, imaging depending on what they need. So then for women, going back to that carbohydrate component, in truth, they actually need much less than than men do. So if they were very active, then they can make up for the balance. And again, this is not really based in research. Most of the research is actually done in men. However, from clinical practice, from 10 years of clinical practice, I have found that men have much more dietary flexibility than women do. And in particular, carbohydrates. That's interesting because most of the time men are seen as they can just, if they do one thing constantly, Right, like they they cut out beer, for example, they or they right they eat one thing, they're fine. Versus with women, perhaps it's the monthly cycle, perhaps it's I don't know what, but women can't do that. It doesn't it doesn't have that big of a a benefit. That is totally true, and it could be based largely on skeletal muscle mass. So we know that skeletal muscle mass does play a, a role in the resting metabolic rate, which is simply what you burn at rest. 
you know, the liver plays a role, kidney, the brain, but muscle mass is the one organ in which you can change the size of the amount of, it's very malleable. And when you change that, you actually can change your metabolism. Not only what you're burning during activity, but also what you're burning at rest. Which is why during menopause, when women's estrogen decreases, it's interesting, around menopause, that is the time when women lose the most muscle mass. That the trajectory is very sharp at that time. And so could that also then be the link as to why women are getting Alzheimer's? Because if you're losing yes, muscle mass, to such that is a very sharp link. So Alzheimer's, depending on if it's genetic or not. So there are genetic components to Alzheimer's, but largely Alzheimer's is type three diabetes of the brain. It's insulin resistance of the brain. And we know that the wider the waistline, the lower the brain volume. I used to image individuals' brains. We did fMRIs when I was doing research at WashU. It was very, very interesting. And we looked at the metabolic profile. Muscle mass definitely correlates to Alzheimer's in the way that the lower the muscle mass, the more metabolic dysregulation individuals have. And there are some connections between loss of muscle tissue and increase in Alzheimer's. And so when you're saying muscle mass, how do you measure that? Or how do you know what is a good level? <laughs> Another great question. So the, the answer is in our normal day-to-day -day life, we don't have a great way to measure it. You can do a DEXA, which is okay. And underwater weighing is certainly the gold standard, but it's not necessarily easy for everyone to just go out and measure. Yeah, what's the typical range that you're looking for? You know, as it relates to percent body fat, when you're creeping up or over the mid-20s, 30s, you're definitely considered overweight and obese. What's interesting is that there's no definition of what is optimal skeletal muscle which is interesting. So we have an opto, we know what would be considered too high body fat, but I can't say, hey, Dasha, um, you should be 75 pounds of skeletal muscle mass, of lean tissue. We have no idea. Yeah. And you see, because I think one of the things that you talk a lot about is, is about this muscle-centric approach to medicine, to, mm -hmm. to longevity, right? Yeah. And how muscle is so important there isn't this gold standard of if you have this amount of muscle, you're going to live to 120, 180. You also have the blue zones where I wouldn't say that many people are going and lifting weights. All that. Also correct. And they're much smaller individuals and they have lived very active lifestyles. They're not domesticated. Mm -hmm. Right now we live in this society where individuals are incredibly domesticated. We do know that the lower the muscle mass, the higher the morbidity and mortality of individuals. So that, we do know that, which is decreases your survivability. And it's interesting, it's so interesting, and I think this says a lot about our society without getting too esoteric, is that we have a failure of the fat-focused paradigm. Constantly looking at how to lose body fat, constantly looking at how to lose weight, and the recidivism rate, meaning the relapse rate of obesity and weight gain is incredibly high, right? Uh, the majority of people do regain the weight and in fact regain more weight. And part of it is because the concept and the framework in which we are functioning in our understanding is actually incorrect. So it's not really about being over fat. That is symptomology that comes on later, years of metabolic dysregulation, years of elevated blood glucose, too many calories. It really is an issue with muscle. Skeletal muscle injury, skeletal muscle metabolic dysfunction 
comes first. So by shifting the focus from a negative perspective, looking at the symptom symptomatology to a proactive root cause approach, which is muscle-centric living, then you can actually solve these problems that have plagued our society for lifetimes, generations. If you are overweight, if you are suffering from I mean, many of the things that your patients suffer from, right? It's it, for you, is it that you typically first just start saying, all right, what does your regimen of working out look like? What is that thing for you when you, besides just the tests? So let's say I'm a woman who comes to you and says, I have Hashimoto's or I have chronic fatigue. How would you start with that, with this muscle-centric medicine approach? Well, the initial intake for me is 90 minutes. I get to know my patients very well. So it is pretty complex. We look at every pillar in their life and um, definitely nutrition and certainly their training, what they're doing and their hormonal status and then really understanding what's happening, you know, something that perpetuates the problem. But certainly looking at their training, none of my patients leave without talking about training and nutrition as a core foundation. You know, you can be paleo and get the macronutrients wrong. So there, there is a balance. So for your patients, what would you start kind of, what would you say stop doing immediately? Hands down across the board for all women. You have to get carbohydrates and you have to get calories under control, period. That's a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. So that's number one that we do. And then number two is you have to optimize for protein. And, you know, I am certainly a little more radical in my approach. I will really reduce carbohydrates. I, you know, there are components of carbohydrates that can be inflammatory for people. So I really reduce that. And, and I don't want to say it's kind of a carnivore reset because that's a little extreme and it's not, but it is certainly increasing high quality protein, reducing and managing caloric load is really important and doing high quality testing. A lot of the times in my practice, if, for example, we're talking about Hashimoto's, I'll do a lymphocyte reactivity assay, which was originally created by Russell Jaffe, and that looks at the response of the immune system, the lymphocytes, mm -hmm. to environments, to foods. So it's not antibody testing, but it is immune testing. For your patients, it's stop the carbs <laughs> or start reducing that. Are there any patients that you've seen do well with more carbs? I have had some patients do well with some carbs for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I initially start people at 90 grams, which the data doesn't support that, but this is what I have found in clinical practice to really be a sweet spot for women. Mm -hmm. And then we can titrate up or down. Women that have a lot of stress, cortisol dysregulation tend to do better with carbohydrates later on in the day or a pre-feeding before bed. I see a lot of reactive hypoglycemia, women that wake up in the middle of the night and go to eat. And oftentimes it's a drop in blood sugar in the middle of the night. So that would be an example. You know, and of course they earn their carbohydrates with activity. If you correct nutrition and you correct dietary protein, what happens is you correct hedonic eating, which is eating for pleasure. Yeah, you correct this habitual feeding and, and you can get really clear on your hunger senses. Am I eating because I'm hungry or am I eating because I'm bored or emotional or a whole slew of other things that may be completely unrelated to metabolic function? And really getting that under control is important. 
And you do that by optimizing the macronutrient protein. And what I think is interesting what you just said is if you go back in time, back to, I mean, not even that, not even go to, going back to paleo, right, or primal, just go to our grandparents where we didn't have our phones pinging at us. We didn't have constant Netflix. We didn't have all these different things that were, are pinging at our dopamine receptors. And so now going back to that hedonic eating, it's what are we trying to fill? What's the gap that we're trying to say, okay, well, I'm not happy. And yet, and I'm going to go to the kitchen. I just want to say to your point, like you said, with the phone pinging and all this stuff, it's we're training, we're unwittingly training ourselves to need more, to be in constant search of excess. And, and really it comes out in our physical health. There was somebody I was, I was talking to before about who was mentioning that when you think about sustenance, uh-huh. I mean, we're talking about proteins, we're talking about, you know, and yeah. we're talking about nutrition, fine. But what is the other sustenance around us? What are the relationships that we've got going on? What is, you know, a going to work out is a form of sustenance. Yeah. You get some sort of an energy from that as well. It's not yeah. just, oh, you've eaten, you've eaten steak. Yeah. You know, the other thing you asked me when we first started, what is the one, you know, myth to bust? And it, it was kind of this concept of it takes a lot to get bulky. You know, the other thing that I would say, which is so interesting is there's this negative internal dialogue as it relates to health and wellness and body composition that I see with women, it, that they're so tough on themselves. And it it tends to get in the way of them being able to execute appropriately because they're constantly um, in their head doing things that actually impede progress as opposed to propel them forward. You know, and, and I think when it comes to being successful at weight management or even optimization, having a plan in place and really not talking yourself out of it and, and executing appropriately. High quality protein is incredibly essential as women change their hormonal milieu, as your estrogen decreases, testosterone, progesterone, as these sex hormones decrease. And we live in an environment which is very stressful. So you're up against cortisol and inflammation, which are largely catabolic and break down muscle tissue, the organ of longevity. So eliminating the false narrative of not good enough, not doing enough, and implementing good execution of a plan really allows for success. I hadn't thought about that link that you just said of we're constantly stressed. Our cortisol levels are always so high and what it's, and it is catabolic. So if that's the case, it's just beating your own body up. It's beating up, it's pulling away from the muscle. If you're sitting in a, a job that you're really stressed at, in reality, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, well, I shouldn't go and work out because I'm going to get bulky. You should go and be working out a lot more because your muscles need yeah. to be combating the stress that you're having from your computer. Yes. Everything that you do has to be muscle centric. And listen, I, I don't say this for some arbitrary reason. Um, I'm a, a trained geriatrician. I, I trained at WashU, which is one of the finest institutions in the country. And quite frankly, it was really brutal. You know, I mean, so the deal was I was able to get an advanced degree in nutritional sciences, but the rub was I would have to do clinical care and do a fellowship in geriatrics. And when you see people at the end of their life and you're seeing hundreds of people at the end of 
their life. There is an urgency that happens, an urgency with information and importance. It's kind of like when your parents say, oh man, you should have done this. And they say it in a way that's kind of light and maybe you miss it as opposed to like, hey, listen, if you don't do this, the rest of your aging process is going to be horrific. You know, I mean, I, I can't stress it enough because I've been in the trenches. I've seen more than my fair share of people die, right? And, you know, you get this insight where it's like, hey, man, everybody needs to know this. And right now we have this influx of information and very little wisdom is being shared. So it's so much information. Oh, do this detox or, oh, go vegan or, oh, go vegetarian. And it's like, okay. And then the subsequent cost of imprinting this kind of behavior and these beliefs and this narrative so young and you know it's dangerous and i think that that's why i'm so vocal because i've seen it so with those patients that you saw it was oftentimes it was what sarcopenia or what oh, were you all seeing? the time always sarcopenia so sarcopenia is loss of muscle mass and function mm -hmm. and you know we've seen it with our own parents right you know they get tinier and, and skinnier and mm -hmm. you know you just see the way in which they live it they start doing less you know the majority of them were not eating whole food diets they were not eating red meat they've always been told that red meat was bad you know and i ran part of the the responsibility is running a dementia clinic for two years i mean it was a lot and um they had sarcopenia they had alzheimer's they had all the metabolic diseases hypertension cardiovascular disease you name it diabetes i don't know if i said that one or yet you know yet but you know if and very few of them lived in a more optimized way. You know, I look at my dad who's 70. He walks, if it takes him three hours or less, he'll walk. Three hours or less, I mean, yeah, he lives in Ecuador, but three hours or less, he walks. He resistance trains three times a week. My dad's testosterone levels, his blood work was better than the young Navy SEALs that I see. I mean, it was outrageous, goes in the sun, lifts weights, eats meat, trains, very physically active, you know? I just think that if we can provide that information and provide that wisdom to the people now in their 30s and 40s, then you change the paradigm of thinking, you can then affect the rest of individuals aging. So it's really about root cause information, not just root cause medical treatment. Now going back to so the patients that you saw the, the women specifically yeah. in in the geriatric clinic were they able to after starting to have more of this protein-based approach or muscle-centric approach were they able to reverse some of these symptoms or is it was a little too late it's a little it's a little late frankly but the body composition improved somewhat but you know it's like it's tough at that age well, because you're starting to age already, starting your 30s, right? Yeah, of course. But, you know, it's the mental perspective of starting a new thing of, but, but wait a second, but for 90 years, I've been told that eating meat's bad. You know, I mean, it's not likely. I mean, the one thing that we were able to introduce that patients were very open to was MCT oil, as opposed to Namenda or Aricept, some of the other medications, MCT oil between five and 10 grams. People were very open to that for cognition, but you know, we know as it relates to bone density in women, the lower the protein diet, the lower the bone density. That's a big problem. And that's stuff that's pretty well established in the research. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah. So bone is made up of protein. And 
you know, it's interesting. So dietary protein, the body's constantly going through hundreds of grams of turnover a day. You're turning over cells constantly. You're making new machinery. So the dietary protein that you eat, if you are very sub-threshold, so the NHANES data suggests that the average protein intake for a woman is around 65 grams of protein. It's very low. That's enough for two meals to suboptimally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, right? That's like nothing. Um, so this is the NHANES data set. NHANES data set, that's the largest data set. And you know, what we know is that if you are sub-threshold in optimizing protein, it goes to tissue turnover. It doesn't go to thing, you know, it's got to make sure that your liver is turning over and that your intestines are turning over and that your heart is able to work. It doesn't care about your bone or your hair or your skin or your nails, right? It doesn't care because that's, it trades short-term survivability for long-term optimal functioning. By optimizing protein, we know that those individuals that optimize high-quality protein and, of course, get enough vitamin D had the best bone density and have the best bone density and are less likely to fall and break a hip and then be put in a nursing home and then never get out. So with protein, then, it's not all the same, right? It's not. The China study may not be the correct one. Right, and the China study, we know, I mean, you know that's epidemiological data. That's not a randomized controlled trial. I don't even know how they called it a study. You know, just to briefly mention, it looked at two groups, one in a, a very polluted area of China where they're eating a bunch of crap, and then one where they're kind of out in nature, and they determined that that was some kind of study. That's epidemiological data. And yeah, if you compare those two groups, you're going to see differences, but you can't distill out that there was smoke and all this other stuff. So yeah, so that is... So an animal protein versus a plant protein, the difference... Totally different. Or, yeah. And these are hard, fast biological values, and it relates to the digestibility score. It relates to the amino acid profile. So there's 20 amino acids, nine are essential. Animal protein has more of a balance of those nine essential, meaning you can't eat it. You have to, or you can't make it, you have to eat it. And in particular, branched-chain amino acids, so that's leucine, isoleucine, and valine, is, is really important to get enough of because that's what stimulates muscle protein synthesis is that leucine, that amino acid leucine. I'll give you an example. If you wanted to have animal protein versus plant protein, let's say you wanted to just go plant-based, I'd say, okay, we can do it. And we're going to do it whole foods because you don't want to take supplements. Say, okay, let's do that. You would require 35 to 45% more food in say tofu or wheat or whatever you're intake ingesting to get that same amount of amino acid quality of animal protein. So let me give you a specific example. You would need about six cups of quinoa to equal one small chicken breast. That's metabolically devastating and disgusting. I mean, like who eats that much? <laughs> yeah. But these are the, the conversations that need to be had because what we're seeing is that people are saying, oh, you know, this plant protein has the same. It's not. These are, I mean, first of all, let's take a step back and think logically. The structure of a plant is different than the structure of an animal tissue. In and of itself, those structures contain different compounds in different amounts, which make those structures. And you require the structure, the amino acid profile in skeletal muscle is the correct amino acid profile to feed your own skeletal muscle. So it makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's when we 
get lost in the information overload that things get a bit confusing. Now, what about the question when, when people say, oh, well, I don't want to eat meat because I'm already hormonally imbalanced and there's already a, a number of hormones that are pumped full into these animals. They're not. And I think it was University of Iowa that came out with that. The, the USDA is pretty tight on its regulations. There can't be extra or excess hormones that would, not, that would be outside of a natural animal that can go to market. They do have a chip so that male cows do get some estrogen to balance out the, the testosterone. I, I believe they get some kind of implant so you're not eating bull and people just don't find that palatable. But that hormone doesn't come into the tissue and it's not outrate, you know, it's all tested before it goes to market. Not to mention that if you look at the hormonal estrogens in pee, that's a million times higher. I have a good post on that in my Instagram where it, it compares them. Again, I think it was University of Iowa. Yeah. yeah. So the, it's totally a myth. Another one debunked. <laughs> but it's interesting because that's what people think. The worst thing that you could do if you're hormonally imbalanced is to pump your body full of carbohydrates and lower your protein intake. That's literally the worst thing that you could do because then you're going to raise your insulin. You're going to gain weight. You're going to then become estrogen dominant. You're going to have adiposity, visceral adiposity that's pumping out estrogen. Like this is not, this is not a good plan, not a good strategy. So for those women who are saying, okay, yes, this is, I hear you on the protein, I get it, but I have a moral dilemma with this or, and for, or religious, or for some reason I need to be vegetarian. What do you say to that? I say, we're really going to, if you're going to do that, then maybe we would consider a keto vegetarian style diet and then add in essential amino acids and branched chain amino acids it can be done. Just have to be really aware and cognizant of the supplementation that's going into that right. really important so it's doable but it's a lot more yeah it's a lot more work and if you're like you listen if you're like me i can't find socks that match i'm a full-time mom running a full-time concierge medical practice with a husband who's a former seal now in medical school with an you know infant running around i can't find two matching socks i couldn't yeah. imagine having to eat my meal, match it with my amino acid profile, and then have my iron, and then have my omegas, and then have this. Listen, I'd be lucky if I could brush my teeth at that day. I mean, I just, listen, I, I've been taking care of patients for 10 years. You set yourself up for failure if things, if you don't have a, an executable plan. But listen, you could do it, but it would definitely take a lot of mental real estate. So for those, for those women who aren't having those those challenges, you'd say, okay, increase your protein, potentially start fasting. Is that in your, in your protocol? It depends as well? on your age. So a uh, great question. Fasting, if you are in the, your fifties, fasting is a not a, a not great strategy because again, how do we combat muscle loss and sarcopenia? You don't want to accelerate it. And the work by Doug Patton Jones would really consider, he talks a lot about bed rest and aging and so where I was going with that was, was this whole fasting is that really his work shows uh, about the acceleration of tissue loss, and it's very difficult to get back. If you are in your 50s or 60s, do not recommend fasting. Or if you are perimenopausal, I do not recommend fasting. So the fasting is going to increase the rate at which you lose muscle. Yeah, it has the potential. I mean, again, if you're doing a 16 hour fasting window, you're eating eight to nine hours. That's okay. That's a strategy that I use. Um, it allows me to maintain my muscle mass. And of course, exercise offsets that. 
uh, dietary protein and resistance exercise both stimulate muscle tissue. But long-term fasting as you're aging and you have hormonal dysregulation, or if you're trying to get pregnant, it's not a great strategy. Now, also you mentioned about the it's the idea of as you age, kind of that muscle resistance, that anabolic resistance. Talk a little bit about protein specifically and the increase that, you, that is required and why it's required as you age. It's interesting. The aging body is really its own bird. There's this concept called anabolic resistance that happens. And what this is, is the tissue, interesting. So overall, the body becomes more insulin resistant as you age. Subsequently, skeletal muscle becomes anabolically resistant. What that means is it is the protein efficiency actually goes down. So if, Dasha, if we were going to have 30 grams of protein and we're in our 30s and 40s, we're fine. But if you were in your 60s and you're having 30 grams of protein, you are not going to stimulate muscle protein synthesis or your skeletal muscle tissue. Uh, it, it's going to be sub-threshold because the efficiency and utilization and the sensing of those amino acids decrease. The way in which you overcome that, let's say you don't want to increase your caloric load, is you do resistance training, you increase the blood volume to the muscle, you increase the nutrient exchange, and you have protein immediately after a workout. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is that you bump your protein meal intake up to 50 grams. And now you have enough of the amino acids that flood the system at one time. It's very important that you don't sip on a protein shake over a period of time or you eat a bite and then go do something else. But it's that robust, bolused amount that really changes everything. With these types of conversations, you always go back to, wait, this is what was done years ago. Correct. You'd have one meal in the afternoon, let's say, and that's it, right? Maybe a cup of coffee in the morning and then a meal in but for you, I think you also, one of the things you talk about is how important a heavy breakfast is or how that protein in the- A high protein breakfast, right. So that sets your metabolism up for the day. Getting that first meal right is the, the most important thing that you do. The capacity for the muscle to reset is about five hours. That's what we think. That's what has been extrapolated in the research. So if you are trying to optimize body tissue, you're looking at three to four meals a day. If you are looking to maintain, you could easily do that with two meals as long as you're doing resistance training in between or some kind of training and movement. So you're not a fan of OMAD? I think it's a, a, an incredibly suboptimal strategy according to the literature. But listen, it, whatever works for an, an individual works for an individual. From my perspective as a trained geriatrician, I think it's a really bad idea. So with your clients, it's wake up in the morning, go for a workout, come back, have a really protein heavy breakfast? Is that? It depends on what our strategy is for them. So if they are doing time restricted feeding, their first meal could be 11. I don't care when they train as long as they get it in. If they're older, I tend to like to have them train in the morning. And then I like to have them, uh, many of the hormones are highest in the morning. Uh, I'd like to have them train in the morning. And then I like to have them have a protein shake or some kind of meal right after because it's supported by literature. The goal is when we think about what is our ultimate goal, our goal is to maintain their muscle mass, if not even improve it. Now, do you see this be any different or change over the course of a woman's life cycle? So, you know, when she's just starting to, to cycle versus when she's right about to be pregnant, let's say, or kind of between, between 
20 to 35 and then, you know, those different phases, do you see that to be different? What a great question. I, I don't think anyone has ever asked me that. And I was just looking at some of the literature when it comes to 18 and younger, and it's fascinating. There, is, there are almost no studies. I actually couldn't find any as it relates to protein intake in, in terms of really high quality data for 18 and younger, because those are isotope and biopsy studies. No one's going to do that in a nine-year-old, right? So all of that data, first of all, zero to 18 is really extrapolated data. You know, I, I, I shouldn't say zero because that's breastfeeding data, but individuals can get away with much less protein per meal, 18 and younger, even 25 and younger. It's really total protein for the whole day. Uh, a younger individual who is say, you know, before their period hasn't even gotten it, could probably get away with five to 10 grams of protein. And that could potentially optimize their anabolic response because they have so many hormones and they're so active, you know, but then as a woman gets in her later, you know, 25 and above, now you're starting to think of a more discrete amount of protein, which looks like around 20 grams, maybe 1.8 grams of leucine because she's still really driven by hormones. And then as you continue to age, you're looking at it then creeps up. The next number would be 30 grams of protein per meal. And that is possibly enough to stimulate muscle protein synthesis in an adequate amount. And then you move to your 40s and 50s, and you're looking at really a minimum between 30 and 50 grams per meal. And it changes due to that changing hormonal milieu, and not necessarily in particular estrogen or testosterone. Those all plays an impact in your 30s and 40s, but it's you know, what's more potent is the older you get is that anabolic resistance. You combine that with lower levels of hormones. Now you really have to make up for the changing internal milieu. Now, do you find that that changes? So if you're older, oftentimes I hear that women just say, I'm just not hungry. You've got to be very strategic at what you're feeding them. And if they're not hungry, the first thing they have to eat is protein. Protein goes first. Mm. Um, and these are patients that do really well with whey protein shakes which is interesting because whey has a very high, you know, robust amount of amino acids and they can get away with less. And now have you also seen any studies with respect to protein during the cycle? So one week, you know, during your luteal phase or anything like that? No, there's not a ton of data out on women. It's interesting, but definitely not as it relates to protein intake. Because yeah. when you think about protein intake, the, it, it really is a muscle tissue issue. Yeah. And how do you stimulate mTOR, which is that mechanistic target of rapamycin, appropriately to then lay down more tissue, specifically mm -hmm. skeletal muscle? And that doesn't really change because it's based on that amino acid leucine. You know, listen, the changing in estrogen does have other impacts. Uh, and I, what I think is even more impactful is when you don't have it. So there's some data I was looking at yesterday that after 24 weeks of estrogen deficiency, individuals lost a substantial amount of muscle mass. Now with mTOR, can you debunk the myth? mTOR is mechanistic target of rapamycin. And it's actually not a growth initiator, it's a growth promoter. And it is, there's actually mTOR complexes in all cells, in the brain, in the pancreas, in the liver, the kidney, it uh, is everywhere. And it's interesting because mTOR is very essential for muscle mass, right? You can't actually grow without it. It's stimulated by protein. 
so somehow people will say, oh, protein is bad for you because it stimulates mTOR and mTOR stimulates cancer. So if that were the case, then exercise and putting on muscle mass would be bad, right? It doesn't make sense. mTOR in muscle tissue is exquisitely sensitive to branched-chain amino acids, proteins. mTOR in liver is exquisitely sensitive to insulin, excess calories. So if an individual wanted to make the argument that mTOR stimulation is bad for you, then the worst thing that you could do would be overeating carbohydrates, excess carbohydrates all day long, because that actually stimulates mTOR in all the other tissues. mTOR conversation is really used in an anti-animal narrative, an anti-protein narrative, for whatever reason, what that strategy is. So mTOR stimulation in skeletal muscle is essential and necessary. mTOR is a growth promoter, right? It helps lay down tissue. It's not a bad thing overstimulation, chronic stimulation of mTOR through excess feeding, carbohydrates and insulin is a problem. And also, I think I, you had touched upon how mTOR doesn't have the statistically significant. It was like 1.3, I think at one point. Uh, so protein. So there was this concept of pro people say, oh, well, protein causes cancer. Yeah. The first question is, well, really, what kind of cancer and by what mechanism of action? When all the data, which, so you look at relative risk or risk ratio, so they've, they've actually done those studies. In order for something to be clinically significant, the number has to be above two. And the relative risk of eating protein, dietary protein in cancer is 1.2. So, you know, we're, versus smoking is 12, smoking and lung cancer. So, you know, it's a lot of myth, you know, when you, you think about it. So what kind of cancer would protein cause? There's never been high quality data to support that. In fact, quite the opposite. As it relates to survivability, one of the, the top things that kills individuals is cachexia, which is the wasting. It's muscle tissue wasting. And what's the number one thing that causes cachexia then? is it's highly catabolic. It's highly catabolic. Cancer is a highly catabolic um, disease. What causes cachexia then? TNF-alpha. There's a lot of cytokine releases, a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines that really begin to degrade muscle tissue. So then you mentioned about leucine as well, saying that it was required to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, it, it stimulates mTOR. That's where those numbers and grams came back from because it, it requires about two and a half grams for the average individual to stimulate. Is that based again on muscle mass or weight or anything like that? No, it's just- No, it's not. It's just based on muscle tissue. It just is based on that sensing mechanism, which is a great question, which actually goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, is that it's not about female or male when it comes to protein need. It's about total body weight and lean muscle mass and ideal body weight. Because whether you're a 125 pound female or a 250 pound guy, the amount of leucine that it's gonna to take to stimulate the tissue is gonna be the same because of that mechanistic target of rapamycin. So that, that's very interesting, you know? Because you would, you would expect that that would be more or less, or it would depend on- You would on... expect it would be different, but yeah. it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and I suppose that that would make sense because insulin stimulation also is not sex differentiated. Now, does leucine break down with heat? Is that something that you need to have in a raw form? No. No, okay. it doesn't. I had read somewhere that that's, that's one of the kind of pushes for having raw meat then. God, I would never eat raw meat. I had one patient who I love her to death. She is a raw meat carnivore. Man, 
I don't recommend that. What's your take on the carnivore diet in general? Like, I mean, Michaela Peterson is, has done so well on it in the past couple of years. I think it's fantastic. I think it all depends on the individual. I think that there's a real place for it. You know, I'm largely carnivore by nature, but I'll have avocado, I'll have fruits, you know, I'll have some berries with my kid, but not a ton. I think that there is a real place for it. And I think that we don't know those metabolic markers as to why, whether it's gut microbiome or what. You know, just like there is a percentage of the population that's going to do great being vegan. It's true. There is that bioindividuality. That being said, you cannot ignore good science. Now, yeah, what do you say to whole hosts of, of countries that are vegan or vegetarian and they're doing just fine? Is it, is it a common about like vitamin D and being close to the equator in India, for example? They eat a ton of dairy and a ton mm -hmm. of eggs. I mean, I don't know if they ate a ton of eggs, but they ate a ton of dairy. So they're not vegan at all. Um, I mean, they also have some of the highest rates of Alzheimer's. And diabetes, yeah. And diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So for you, is there a component that is genetic then? There's certain people that would do very well on a meat-based diet or, or having more meat or more animal protein. I do. Yeah, I do. Just because it's been a core foundation principle in my practice, I've only had one patient ever complain. She complained because she gained too much weight. She put on too much muscle. She wanted to look very waif-like. Right. Obviously, it wasn't a great fit for the practice, but that's the only patient. But, you know, I do have some vegetarian patients. So the, the key is to really find the strategy that works. Yeah, because so for my background is I was vegetarian for nine years. I was vegan, then vegetarian. I was vegan, macrobiotic, vegetarian for about six. And what shifted for you? I got sick. My teeth started getting loose. My gums started bleeding. I became really? anemic. I couldn't support my training in altitude. It was a disaster. What shifted it for you? Um, I was apprenticing at an Ayurvedic hospital and I took care of the cows. And but what changed? Are, so are you still vegetarian? So I eat fish. Okay. But there's an element. So all of the, my tests when I've done them, they have all been fine with the exception of having a little bit too much mercury. Um, so something just to think about, right? It's got, I'm kind yeah. of saying that to me as well. Um, but everything else seems to be fine. Now, granted, I'm 32. I, you know, so who knows if it's fine for now, right? But to me, it's an element of, I find it difficult to pay somebody else to kill an animal that I wouldn't be okay killing on my own. I am okay killing a fish because I know exactly what I need. And after what about eggs? Do you eat eggs? Eggs is fine. Yeah. Great. I don't know. It's, it's a little bit of, I mean, there's, the, there's hypocrisy and everything, right? No, I think that that's um, great. I think finding what your tolerance, what your ethical tolerance is, mm. and then making sure that you're getting good iron supplementation and zinc and just knowing what your tolerance is. And I think it's interesting because there's, it's again, it's meeting people where they're at. And it, okay. within this dialogue, there's so many people that are, oh, you have to be carnivore. You have to be this. You have to be that. It's like, I mean, no, people have their different tolerances. People have their different ethical dilemmas. So for you then, thinking about a branch chain amino acid supplement to rebuild, to rebuild and repair muscle tissue, yeah. what, what do you look for? Or, or there, is there specific ones that you really like? So it should be a two to one to one ratio, leucine, isoleucine, valine. I do work with a company called First Form. People mm -hmm. can uh, find a link on my IG. Mm -hmm. There's a, in the link tree. Um, I think they're a great company and uh, they have great products. But again, it's a two to one to one ratio, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be anything else. And that's taken once a day? How, is, how do you? Depends, so for you, I would take it with each meal that you have. And do you find that anybody doesn't have tolerance to these things? 
I don't. Because it's a natural no. thing that your body needs. And it's essential. And it's the essential. key is it's essential. Yeah. So we're not pushing individuals to super physiological ranges. We're just keeping what is essential. And so for women, again, is it a men versus women thing of how much protein do they need per pound? Is it one gram per pound that they... Ideal body weight. Mm-hmm. Because there's no harm. The opportunity here is to replace carbohydrates and fats to something that would be potentially more valuable. So protein, there isn't a more valuable macronutrient. It's what you need to rebuild everything for hormones, for tissue, for gut, feeds the cells of your immune system. What are the biggest things that you find your patients shifting with, your, your female patients specifically? Would it ask that in a different way so I can understand. Your female patients who come to you, what is the biggest shift that you see happening for them? I saw on your Instagram, you had somebody talk about hair loss, for example. So I'm going to give you an esoteric answer, and then I'm going to give you a, a physical. I would say one of my special skills as a physician is seeing the optimized individual, seeing what their potential is and helping them actualize it. And I would say with the women so I hold them to what I think is their highest standard. And it doesn't mean, oh, you know, it has to be this body weight or this. It's, I truly do see them. And I, and I take care of a ton of high achievers. I would say the majority of my practice is individuals who want to change the world. The biggest shift is empowerment. So I, I help them remove the physical obstacles. We give them their energy back. We design good nutrition plans, supplementation plans, anything that's bothering them or holding them back. You remove that. And then people can step into, you know, I see a lot of decrease in anxiety and depression because they finally feel comfortable enough to outsource it. They're not constantly questioning everything. They have a a solid plan. It's like their home. It's their medical home. And I have just seen the trajectory of their capacity increase tenfold. That's, I mean, that's really special, especially when you start talking with doctors who are just saying, oh, well, I'll just give you a pill. Like, no, I'm, it sounds to me that you're saying, to some extent, being their partner on this journey. A hundred, and they will all tell you that. So they will all tell you exactly that. You know, and it's not just about being a good functional medicine doctor. My relationship with them is, man, who do you need to be? Who do you need to be to execute the vision that you have Mm -hmm. for your life and move them in that direction? I've seen it time and time again. Yeah. Incredible. They're incredible. Now, how, how much of that do you feel is the patient themselves coming to it and saying, I'm ready to change? This is, you know, I've hit my rock bottom. I've tried everything. In my case, for example, completely ready to shift away from vegetarianism to eating fish because I knew that I needed that. Um, how much is it their readiness? I, um, I don't know because it really is a team effort. If they were ready and they had done it before, then they don't need me. But that's not actually the experience that I would say that they have or that I have with them. It's really, you know, we have really good relationships and they trust me that they feel good enough to, you know, it's very hard to put into words, but it's, you know, it's kind of like when you have a friend that sees the best in you and constantly pushes you towards that. It's very similar to that. Some of them are not ready to change and I push and push and push them. I will not accept any mediocrity for their own life, their health. They get away with a lot less. 
It's uh, the reason I asked that is when when I was at I was apprenticing at that hospital in India, we had a couple of patients that wanted to come to the hospital, and the physician just said, "I don't want to take them. I'm not going to take them because they're not ready and willing to do what's necessary." Because part of this is it is a, it is that partnership. But if the doctor's pushing, 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 and the patient's just saying, "Yeah, well." I, I want the easy way, or I'm not going to be working out every day, or I'm not going to change and, and stick to this program. It, it, it's wasted effort. Yeah. And that's it's not my patient po- population there, you know, for people to come see me, there's a whole screening interview process. It's not, it has to be a good fit both ways. Otherwise wasting everyone's time. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't do that. No one has yep. time for that. Yep. Time is the most precious commodity. I think. What other types of things do you see within your female patients specifically? A lot of eating disorder type behavior, emotional eating. And I think that that holds people hostage a lot, a lot of secrets. And once you liberate those secrets and you put a good plan in place, then there's freedom from that. A lot of um, habitual kind of things. So really that's where nutrition plays a role because when you can manage the nutrition aspect, and this is where people, when they are under eating protein, I see this come up frequently. Once you implement optimal protein, there's less likely to binge eat. There's all kinds of improvements that happen. Yeah, because more, you're more satiated. Totally. And you have the correct neurotransmitters. You know, there's a protein leverage hypothesis that you're eating to feed a certain protein need and that you'll continue to eat that. Which is probably part of the reason why whenever you're vegetarian, you are missing out on that protein. So you're just wanting more and more and more to fr- totally. try and fill that. What is the protein leverage hypothesis say in terms of the amount of protein that you're looking to? Between 18% up to 30 of protein. Hmm. I mean, 30 is probably on the higher end, but that you'll continue to feed up into a certain percentage. In terms of you and thinking about any kind of, if you were to see patients who were trying, you know, thinking again, women, women's health, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to get pregnant. Is there something different that you would do for them specifically? A lot of women right now are having challenges with fertility. Within the muscle-centric medicine approach is do you think could actually be helping that? Um, or is there something specific that could be helping them? Uh, for fertility, mm-hmm. definitely need to address body fat. So fertility, you have to address insulin and body fat for sure. Because within body fat, you're storing estrogen. So with body fat, so insulin drives a ton of problems and it drives PCOS. It's one cause of PCOS. So you have to manage body composition for fertility. You have to manage inflammation. And you as a new mom, what were the things that you found would kind of pull you uh, that, that from a health standpoint or some of the either challenges or the things that you didn't realize were going to yeah. be? Yeah. I mean, I was sick for 10 months, so I had hyperemesis gravidum. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that, but I uh, threw up multiple times a day, every day for 10 months. That was From the beginning of your pregnancy? No, the whole pregnancy. So for me, so that was a challenge. I was not able to eat any protein for the majority of the pregnancy. I was eating potatoes. I mean, I was very sick. What did that teach me? I mean, I'm pretty flexible and we can't necessarily be tied you know, I, I mean, like I couldn't eat it and I would try to eat it and I would throw it up. So did you end up having any health issues because you weren't consuming anything or you were almost not able to eat anything? No, I tried to supplement. I did shakes, but again, I'm coming from a lifetime of eating more of an optimal protein. So, you know, after my little love affair with uh, vegetarianism, which I got really sick after that, I started eating protein. So I was very robust. I was able to manage that. 
but I supplemented a lot, did a lot of protein shakes. That was a surprise that I was sick for 10 months. Did you find that that was more on the genetic side or is that just something that came you just up? have no control? Yeah. Never know. Yeah. Um, it just happens. When you had Aries then, what, what was the kind of the re coming back to, to optimal to how yeah. you are now? Just slowly introduced protein back in, got right back to it. You know, I don't tell myself a narrative about it. It's like, okay, come on, let's go. You know, you have to manage the situation in front of you. You address it, you go with it. And then as soon as there's the opportunity for change and the flexibility to go back to what is more optimal for you, then you do that. Any advice or any tips for women who are either, who are breastfeeding or who are coming back from being pregnant? Uh, balance your macronutrients. So if you can, so it, when you are breastfeeding, when you're pregnant, you need more protein. And really the recommendation is a minimum of hundred grams. If you are breastfeeding, you're probably no longer sick. So now you can start to introduce more high nutrient foods, whether it's liver or eggs or, or those kinds of things. But, you know, individuals that are breastfeeding, you definitely will need some carbohydrates. I've found that there's a decrease in milk production when you lower the carbohydrates. And there are things like oats that you can have um, that will help. But I would just say to make sure that you balance it per meal. And I think that's, that's probably also another myth that needs to be debunked of when you're, when you're breastfeeding, you shouldn't be having that much protein. Oh, uh, uh, no, you, you do because you have to make the milk. There's um, just recently there was a, the Netflix show on well. Um, and one of the episodes they had was about men, well, men and women um, who are taking breast milk, saying that that's going to help them with their performance, help them with weight gain, help them with any kind of the physical fitness side of things. Mm -hmm. Breast milk for adults. What's your take? Gross. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> even make sense. I know. You know, I mean, that's so outrageously gross. <laughs> then the last section that I wanted to just touch up with you on is about cognitive decline. And um, one of the things that you had you did have a little bit of a background in psychology. Is that right? Yeah, I trained. I, yeah. So I did two years, uh, worked as a psychiatrist. And so for you on that, on that front and a little bit of a deviation from muscle centric medicine, but thinking about where we're at right now with COVID, with yeah. the isolation, with loneliness, with depression, with anxiety, just talk about your thoughts there. What's it's tough for people. You know, you can't shut down an entire community. Yeah. Can't do that to people. Like it's uh, the mental stress that it has placed on individuals has been tenfold. Yeah. Isolation is a killer in and of itself. You see it with the older adults. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, I think it's very important to connect. I think that we are individuals who like tribes. No matter what people say, we are not the lone wolf. We live in herds and well, we don't live in herds, but we live in communities. I think that COVID has been very devastating for people emotionally. What's your take on what, what to, what's to be done? As it relates to isolation? As it relates to, to getting yourself out of this dump, right? I think that many people right now feel this, this cloud, this anxiety, this, this heaviness of, I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Is 2020 just going to continue having plagues and pesticides? So, yeah. and who knows? So I would say oh eliminate God. any negative stimulus. Eliminating negative stimulus is important. And also taking massive action. You can't wait till you feel better to take action. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, action doesn't, that doesn't help. Mm -hmm. Right? You can't wait for that. Taking action improves everything. It does. Even that, it's just, it's just that forward momentum. It's that forward movement. 
of, I think one of um, Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist in yeah. Stanford, one of the things that he talks about is that of if you are stressed, then even just one step forward, one feeling of I'm doing something. Totally. And I also playing. don't interpret stress as a bad thing. I think yeah. that we think that people say, man, stress is so bad. Mm -hmm. There are multiple stress responses. There is the fight or flight, which is what everybody has, or the, the most common, but there's tendon befriend, mm -hmm. uh, which is you reach out to people, you connect, you, that's much, I'm much more likely to manage my stress that way. And my husband, there's also the courage response. Mm -hmm. There are multiple other ways. Stress allows for growth. You don't grow without stress. And I think it's oftentimes right now we're saying, oh, we're so stressed out. Well, stress, if you didn't have stress, then your life would be pretty damn boring. Oh, God. You know? I, I wouldn't mind it being boring for a while. <laughs> but yeah, totally. Yeah. I totally, and you know, there's a hypervigilant response where we'll, we'll seek it. If we can't mm -hmm. find it, we'll, we'll seek our certain level of comfort. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Anything that you want for women to know about their health, anything else um, that comes to mind that we may not have touched on? Um, I don't. You're in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. You are in the driver's seat finding wisdom through the mass amount of information, which Dasha, you're providing for people. The most important thing, the number one killer is misinformation in every domain. Yeah. So. And doing your own diligence on these things. I think it's so, I mean, it's very easy, especially in, and you oftentimes say the mouse on the microphone, right? Of yeah. that, there's that one person who's just touting things that are just complete bullshit. And, yeah, and totally. it's, try it on yourself. The reality is if you hear something enough, you believe it, yeah. whether it's true or not. Yeah. And really being discerning is important. So three, three rapid fire questions for you that I like yeah. to ask everybody. First one is what would you tell your 15 year old self? Get ready for a ride. It's going to be great. If you would wait, could wave a magic wand and change one thing about women's health, what would it be? I would absolutely emphasize the importance of protein. And that might seem arbitrary, but you know, again, I'm a trained geriatrician. I've seen the end result. They get this, they get this one thing right. It, the trickle-down effect is massive. And what or who has been one teacher or a book that has changed your way of thinking? One teacher or a book? I, I or have multiple met, if you want. I have many mentors in my life. And I would say from a perspective of science and an intellectual integrity, Dr. Donald Lehman, who is a world-class scientist, truly exceptional individual, really exceptional I would also say that if you guys know Commander Mark Devine's teaching, that's also life-changing. And it really has you take a step back and think about your personal ethos and your perspective and your mind. So there's the, the medical aspect, but there's also the mental aspect. And you really can't have one without the other. Brilliant. Well, this is great. Thank you. And where Thank can people you, find you? Where yeah. can people learn more? Um, about they can find you? me on my website, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I have a great newsletter that they should go and sign up for. I spend a lot of time curating good content mm -hmm. and a YouTube channel where I talk a lot about science. And who knows, maybe if people want, I'll talk a little bit more about life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very active on Instagram, so people can go and, and follow me there. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Dr. Gabrielle. This has been yeah. wonderful. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's a lot about protein and muscles. Have you rethought about it and its importance? I sure have. 
If you want to learn more about this, I'd recommend learning more from Dr. Gabrielle on her Instagram account. She's wonderfully active, and her newsletter is also really tremendous. You can find both at www.drgabriellelion.com. If you learned something during this episode, will you do us a kindness and leave a review or tag us on social media? Let's share the wealth together and unlearn some of these fallacies that are really harming our future health. If you enjoy content like this, then chances are you'll love our global online private community of women's health explorers. You can join us at www.whealth.community. Catch you there. Until our next health exploration, stay awesome.